Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. My name is Sophie Bailey and this is the show about improving the dialogue between Ed and Tech for better innovation and impact. This week it's all going on in the UK. This week sees the introduction of a new Secretary of State for Education in the UK after Justin Greening quit after a government cabinet reshuffle. The new Secretary of State for Education is Damien Hinz. The controversial appointment of Toby Young to the Office for Students caused a storm on Twitter with the hashtag Toadmeister for Young's suitability for the role following comments on everything from boobs to inclusivity. In a matter of days, Young decided to stand down from the role within the university's regulator. Given the movements of this week, it is unclear whether the Secretary of State keynote at BET 2018 will now continue. Are you attending BET 2018 in London? The EdTech podcast will be there recording about data, AI, training and international ed. Who would you like to hear from? Let us know. A few final updates. If you're in the Bay Area listening in, why not get down to Cooley's conference and EdTech pitch night on February the 21st from 3pm. If you want to pitch, you've got until Monday to get involved. What else? Tez's former global head of comms is on the lookout for a new role. Board of office for students, anyone? Why not snap him up? And finally, hello to Yoni from Australia, a new listener who plugs in during his recreational cycling time in Brisbane. Right, after that mammoth update, on with the show. This week is our final episode with Dennis Hurley, Director of Future Tech at Pearson. Fear not, we've got five more episodes coming up in collaboration with Dr. Christine DeSherbo, Vice President of Education Research at Pearson, including episodes on invisible assessment, games-based learning and personalised learning, featuring some awesome international contributors. But first up, big thank you to Dennis for being such a good sport, recording at 5am each week and keeping both his budgerigar and Alexa under control during our recordings. Not an easy feat. Here's our blooper reel from the first part of the series together and a big thank you to Dennis. I just realized I have to put my bird uh, in the back. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm not sure if yeah, I mentioned I have a, a bird. When I start talking, he start, tries to start talking back to me. And so uh, <laughs> I don't want him squawking in, in, into the mic. Um, all right, I'll be back in 30 seconds. Okay. Let's imagine a language learning application in virtual reality. You are immersed in... Okay, I'm going to turn off Alexa. I'll be right back. I think you, there's a beeping behind me. We want to wait for that to go away. There we go. Yeah, a bit large, large truck. I like it. It's, we've got the whole yeah. Brooklyn uh, you know, audio ambience going on there. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force quick Chrome so that when I started up again it says do you want to restore your 184 tabs <laughs> yes <laughs> at the end of this week's episode dennis and i get nostalgic looking back over the last four podcasts and thinking about what practical applications of future tech for education you can apply within your own learning environment also we go over some top tips on how you can deploy mindful skepticism starting small and avoiding technology for technology's sake but before all that this week's episode is on what can VR, AR and simulation offer education. Virtual reality has come a long way, but where does it add value in the educational field? 
Looking back to episode 45, my interview with the group tech director of 66 schools in the UK questioned whether VR was an appropriate technology for the classroom. I would certainly share the view that the interesting part of VR and simulation for education is where it offers up access to otherwise elite, high-cost or high-risk learning experiences. It's not just about high-risk, it's also about high-cost. That's Jo Webb, Head of Immersive Learning Design and Development at Pearson. I spoke to her about how VR for learning and training purposes has evolved in recent years. Thank you, thank you for having me. So, first up, how has VR developed and become more refined in its educational offering, do you think? I mean, I think we're still at very early days, not just in the education sector, but in VR generally. So I think it's it's kind of a moving beast. It's changing on a, on a, a day-to-day basis. But I think we have moved away, as you say, from an initial preoccupation with a high entertainment or fear factor sort of experiences like roller coasters uh, towards looking at where can these technologies really add the most value and I think in education that's around as you say um, in education and training that's around opening up these high risk environments uh, allowing learners to really feel like they're they're in those high risk environments that they're they're actually there without putting them into putting them under undue risk so we've been working with some of our engineering customers to to build out some of these places where they might not want to take students but they want them to understand that that environment in detail so is that sometimes around the kind of vocational space i'm just thinking of i saw a couple of case studies recently around nuclear energy and around oil platform training uh, doing sort of health and safety there and also um food health and safety so sort of training in a in a kind of commercial kitchen environment as well absolutely i think it's not just about high risk it's also about high cost in some of those environments that you mentioned it's very expensive to take people to them you don't necessarily initially want to take everybody who's working for your company out onto an oil rig you know it's it's expensive and so it's about looking at where can we where can we really make you feel like you've experienced something but it but but save but save money on the training or the learning so we've got uh, experiences that we've built for our army education courses where they can they can build engineering structures and they can uh, replace actual building of those structures by building them virtually. And that's that's a huge money saving for them. And I was talking to your colleague previously around your work in healthcare as well. So could you give us some insights into some of the developments that you have going on across sort of patient safety and how that also touches upon training in the in the uh, healthcare sector? We've developed a nursing training application and in nursing schools in particular, some nursing schools are able to afford a huge simulation suite and have actors come in uh, and represent patients with different symptoms. Um, But other smaller nursing schools just can't afford those kinds of uh, setups. So our app is is to replace that by giving you a virtual patient that you can work to diagnose and, and we can then change that patient. We can we can add in information about that patient that allows different scenarios to be built around the story of that patient. Uh, and that kind of thing, although the technology may up front look expensive, by the time you work out the cost of having a fully simulation lab and being able to bring in actors each time is actually a huge, huge saving and allows much more kind of democratisation of the education because it can make it available to students who may otherwise never have that kind of patient experience uh, at all because their, their school just doesn't have that facility. 
And it reveals a whole world of uh, cost-benefit analysis I'd never considered before around cadavers or using sort of bodies in surgical simulations as well. Yeah, again, there's a huge movement towards replacing those kind of cadaver labs with with virtual cadavers that you can um, examine from lots of different angles and you can cut up. You know, one of the aspects of this particular episode that we wanted to look at was the practical aspects of mixed reality for teachers and learners. So, you know, having had experience in the classroom, what do you see as particularly relevant for teachers, you know, day in, day out when they're thinking about using mixed reality? And, you know, this might be, um, as you just mentioned, augmented reality or or looking at what you can do on mobile versus using a headset. I just wondered what your thoughts were on those kind of things. One of the main things that we've learned from the work that we've been doing is that really these technologies are are crucial really to the development of visual skills. And one of the things that we've really been looking at in terms of the work we've done with maths and chemistry is how it can help the learner in the classroom towards mastery of the kind of STEM subjects because it allows you to build products which the learner can use to visualise in their head. And that visualisation is a key step towards the mastery of the subject. Being able to, for example, see a molecule in your head, imagine it in your head, that, that's something that, that really good chemists can do. And this technology is a kind of stepping stone towards that by, by helping the learner to, to bring these visual skills to the forefront, really. And so I think for teachers, that's the main thing to think about. You know, how would you choose something that's going to help you to improve visual skills of your, of your learners? And then I think another thing, obviously, is about visiting places. If you, if you want to take your learners to somewhere that they're never going to be able to go, um, you know, again, this is an ideal technology for that because you can really help them to feel and to understand what that location is like. So I went to China earlier on in the year, um, a sort of forbidden city. And I before I'd gone there, I'd done a VR experience of the forbidden city. And I actually, when I got there, it looked familiar to me because I'd already done this experience. And that, you know, again, if, you, if you're never going to be able to take your students there, this is, these are really good technologies for you to use. And another application is to give you, for example, we've got a, an app which allows you to have a virtual museum in your classroom so that you can have a collection of historic objects. You can you can see those historic objects in front of you and you can fully explore them in a way that even perhaps you wouldn't be able to do if you went to a real museum because they'd be in a case. And in this case, you could really explore them from every angle and, and understand very clearly those objects. And then I think lastly, the key to the, the key to technology is really allowing experiences which allow learners to try and to fail I think it's that failure that any teacher knows is really crucial to learning and 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 with with, with the apps that you can develop you can really allow learners to try and try and fail and try again and I think that's absolutely crucial and when you're developing your your products and your different immersive learning experiences with the teachers and, and, and learners as well have you had any feedback in terms of cost or the practical side of it the things that tend to work better are people using uh, this in a sort of bring your own device context or are they um, you know sharing headsets or what's the kind of is there like an average setup that you see for example um, I think it's going to change 
like I said at the beginning, I think things are changing all the time. I, what, what I mostly say to people is you can start at a very low cost level. You know, teachers can just get out there straight away now, take some footage on either a very, very cheap camera or, or with their phone or something, can upload into some into a, into one of the online tools that are available and then can create some little experiences for their learners and that's and just use a Google Cardboard to view it. So there's there's a whole spectrum of technology that's available to do this. You don't have to think, wow, this is so expensive. I've got to spend £3,000 or $3,000 to, to, to produce this stuff because that's not true. You can start at a much lower level. And, you know, all of these things have value for learners in terms of the experience. They, you know, they may not be as polished as the higher-end stuff or the, the, you know, the Oculus Rift type of stuff, but, it, you know, you've still got a learning value out of all of these things. So I think it's... You know, different, obviously, different educational institutions are going to have different budgets and different skill sets in terms of what they want to implement. But everyone really, it's, just, it's accessible to everyone at different levels. I think that's the, the key message. Thanks, Joe. Trying to understand what can and can't be tested in education is a subject that comes up a lot on the podcast. For example, in the next episode of this series, I talk with experts on collaborative assessment about how simulation is helping to isolate impact in a group scenario. Already academics are also busy beavering away on how to assess the role of VR in learning. Ever thought about how expensive it is to buy cadavers or bodies for surgical training? As I look at augmented reality, it's not in place of, it's an addition to all the tools and all the various modalities that we have right now to assist our students in learning. That's Sharon Decker, Quality Enhancement Plan Director, Professor and Director of the F. Mary Hall Sim Life Centre at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Centre. Sharon's team are developing and investigating the use and impact of holographic and haptic-enabled bodies to diversify the training experience for surgical students, whilst lowering cost. Whilst of high interest in patient safety training, their research on the role and impact of VR in learning may also throw up interesting lessons for all in education. Here's Sharon again to tell us more. Hi. When you're looking at the research and the development and the research of utilizing augmented reality as a tool to assist in um, transforming or assisting in the transformation of healthcare education, it provides multiple opportunities that we don't have right now with some of the other modalities. The biggest one that I see would be that by utilizing augmented reality, we can do scenarios that allow students to see sequencing of events. And what I mean by that is if you have a scenario where a patient is changing, okay, or they're decompressing, so they're, and the one that we've done is related to anaphylactic shock where the patient uh, experienced a event that initiated an anaphylactic reaction to. And through the use of augmented reality, we were able to show different stages that the patient was going through due to the um, stimulus that he received. None of the scenario, none of the tools that we have right now provide the opportunity where students can watch those events occur. 
And once you have them, because with augmented reality, you can do the moulage for the patient, then move back in, do another clip, move back in, do another clip. When the student watches it, they can go from clip to clip to clip and watch the progression of this sequence. This provides a completely different format than anything we have right now. So as I look at augmented reality, it's not in place of. It's an addition to all the tools and all the various modalities that we have right now to assist our students in learning. And how long have the students been able to benefit from uh, using augmented reality alongside the other modalities of training? It would be within the last, um, I'd say, 12 months that we have really been able to initiate it and utilize it. And, and what's the physical setup in terms of the augmented reality? Is it done via a laptop or is it done by mobile or a headset? Or It's provided by a headset. And, and what are you finding is, you know, appropriate and is, is the throwback to using sort of more traditional methods so that students get an exposure to what a, a body feels like or what, what, where's the kind of delineation between what, what methods you use as well? When you look at augmented reality, and, you know, and there's, there's challenges with every type of modality you have with simulation. The challenge that, we're, that I see with augmented reality and has been identified by the students is you can't you can't initiate protocols. You can't initiate actions with an augmented patient, with the person that's more in the VR field right now. They can't touch. They can't feel. The communication piece is not there yet. You uh, cannot talk to that person in augmented reality and have them talk back to you. So there's pieces where it's has, it has challenges just like other simulations. So... When you look at it and you're trying to determine what scenarios could be utilized with augmented reality, you've got to look at what are the outcomes that you're looking for your student. But what is, why are you using that technology to get to that outcome? And can that technology, is it the best? Is it the most appropriate for the outcome? So, again, when we're looking at the scenarios, that's one of the things we're looking at right now as they're being developed is which ones would provide the students the best, the learning. What learning could they get that can be supported through augmented reality in a better, as a format, better than some of the others? And, and how did you go about initiating, introducing augmented reality into your training programs and would you have any lessons or advice for people listening in if they're thinking of doing something similar in terms of you know how to embed that effectively with uh, different leadership or stakeholders that you may need to help on board with that experience as well? The how-to is interesting because when you're looking at the learners that we have right now they love technology. Uh, so when you put something like the HoloLens in front of them, they become engaged very fast. So the how-to is what I'd say would be don't try to do it all at once. Do it in pieces and utilize it exactly how the name, you know, it says augmented reality. And I look at it and it's, it augments the other types of simulation. Okay, so it's... Uh, 
it's a different then, but provides support that is at sometimes better than. And how about the choosing of kit and content and developing up uh, specific, I suppose, bespoke content as well? Um, have you had any lessons on that side of things? When looking, looking at the content that is being or the scenarios that are being selected right now, those were selected by discussing the concept with faculty throughout the U.S. and then also in the U.K. You know, what, what did they, what would they like to be able to provide their students, their learners that they can't right now? And um, from the answers we got from that, we can't compile the list and we're working through that list. And so is that all part of Texas Tech University or sort of beyond that university specifically? It's really the the compiling of that list was not just Texas Tech. That was talking to faculty throughout the United States and through um, some of the faculty in the UK. So big question. Uh, You're obviously trialing some of this technology at the moment. And obviously you spoke about the need to be sensitive around which scenarios it's appropriate for and not. Um, how are you going about measuring, um, you know, the effectiveness of uh, using augmented or mixed reality for training um, just to sort of see where, where the impact is really being felt? Okay. The initial step, because when we're going to progress with this, and I, I would say we're in the infancy, is looking at how do students, and I, I, it's not the best, right now, but we're looking at how they perceive it affects their learning. That's step number one. And um, then also getting some qualitative data related to their thoughts and their input. Then once we've got that, then we can move to other measures that can be looked at for was there a difference in learning with, okay? So we're, we're starting, again, little steps with this and utilizing some of the tools that are available. And finally, so one of the questions I always ask everyone, are there any either people, books, resources, tools, social media accounts that you recommend for people that are interested in this space um, in terms of following up and extra reading and that kind of thing? <laughs> the literature is just coming out right now. I mean, there's literature that has been out for several years, but more so is coming out. So really, when you're looking at what should I keep uh, my eye out for, I would say look at the, the articles that are published through some of the simulation journals. And the, it's, it's coming out little by little. Outside of the medical world, VR and simulation is being used in many otherwise high-risk or high-cost training and learning environments. For example, the latest UFI Vocational Technology Showcase in the UK throws up Grinsby Institute Group's Flavours of Reality project, which uses mixed reality to bring enhanced health and safety training to the food manufacturing industry. Another organisation, Bridgewater and Taunton College, as part of the National College for Nuclear, is developing a curriculum based on a physical replica of a nuclear facility. Don't touch that button! This project enables learners to work on live projects in an environment of safe experimentation and failure. 
gaining higher level technical skills by incorporating physical, augmented and virtual reality to replicate the licensed environment. If we turn to the sciences, you may have heard of Labster or Nano Simbox, two companies using AR and VR, immersive and blended learning to spark a passion for STEM in students and teachers alike. The barriers to entry to access an MIT level science lab may seem insurmountable to a high school student who is up against everyone else trying to gain a competitive place at a top university not mentioning the heart-palpitating potential to break a very expensive piece of lab equipment or disrupt decades-old lab etiquette. But what if students could do all of this and experiment to their heart's content? What if they could really get inside the science they're trying to understand? Could that have impact on getting more young people engaged in STEM? STEM is absolutely huge in my school. That's Carolina Okwat, secondary science teacher at the British International School in Shanghai. I spoke to her about the practical day-to-day -day realities of immersive tech for education to get to the bottom of what's really going on with AR and VR in the classroom. Hi. So can you tell us a little bit exactly what your role is uh, within the British International School in Shanghai and also a little bit about the school itself, so the age of the kids, uh, how many people are there and you know the outlook of that school as well? Sure. So as you said, I'm a secondary science teacher at the Bispushi. Um, it is a school in Shanghai. We are part of the North Anglia Corporation, which is the biggest provider of um, secondary education using the British system here in Asia. Uh, we are both primary and the secondary school. And so is the school particularly focused on STEM? Is that a big focus area? STEM is absolutely huge in my school. Uh, it's actually not um, STEM per se, it's STEAM because we've got arts in this as well. We have recently opened um, primary STEAM centre and in January we're opening the Hamilton centre which is going to focus on STEAM for secondary school. In the centre we're going to have a robotics lab, a cinema, facilities for the students to further develop all of those aspects of STEAM. And how long have you been a science teacher for? I moved from London to Shanghai in August and I've been teaching for the last 12 years. That's very interesting. And so how, how have you found the differences between London and Shanghai in terms of science or teaching altogether? Uh, to be honest, I wish I had moved earlier because this, this I need to tell you, this has to be one of the best decisions I've ever done in my life. Wow. Um, my, my school is providing me with absolutely everything what I need to do in order to be successful at teaching and ensuring that my, my students are going to reach their full potential. The students are totally different as well uh, in terms of their approach to learning. They're extremely focused and dedicated. I'm a teacher to a year 13 chemistry class and I need to tailor that in my entire career. I have never worked with students who have such an amazing work ethic that are dedicated, well-organized, self-driven, with amazing ambitions. And I'm really looking forward, forward what they can do um, in May when they are going to take their exams and then further when they start applying to universities. So you're going to spin out some of our future scientists, sounds like. Hopefully. Uh, I have one, one of the students who recently uh, was um, having an interview with the University of Cambridge. Um, so fingers crossed he's going to get his spot. 
<laughs> okay, um, and then I mean, we spoke just briefly briefly before about uh, how you're sort of starting out on the road to, to using augmented and virtual reality. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you've looked into and how those technologies may or may not support your your own kind of aspirations in teaching and learning around science? Sure. Well, my adventure with virtual reality started back in London when I attended one of the BET conferences at the Excel Center. There I met the founder and the owner of NanoSimbox uh, and I started working with them. And so I will be using NanoSimbox within my school. I'm in the process of setting it up at the moment and implementing it into our schemes of work. I am also now using um, augmented reality and I'm using an app which is called Orasma. And tomorrow, actually, I will be finishing off the project that I'm doing with my year nines, where the students were researching famous chemists who um, were awarded a Nobel Prize for chemistry and creating auras um, in order to prepare a beautiful display that is going to grace the corridor outside my room. That's very interesting. So the, the display, will that be uh, augmented in the sense that people can go up and there's a sort of uh, extra depth to what you can see there? Absolutely. So what they've done, they prepared triggers, which are going to be activated using the Orasma app. Uh, so let's imagine that you're approaching the display and you can see uh, pictures of Marie Curie. That's one of the Nobel Prize winners that they chose. And you're going to use your Orasma app and pick one of the triggers. This is going to bring up on your app either a short video that they recorded about her work or something that uh, she has done as a part of her work. This could be either material that they have recorded or material that they prepared in a form of a PowerPoint or something that is directly taken from YouTube. And are you finding that the, the various students, they're going up and interacting with other people's displays and learning in that way as well? Well, th that was the whole point of me thinking about how I could use the the display that I have outside of my room. Uh, as I said to you, this is not uh, finished yet, um, but I have already seen other teachers who were interested in what I was doing, uh, asking me about that. And so obviously I've explained and I had quite a few teachers today asking me to show them how to do that. And I know that this also is going to have applications in other subjects, not only science. And what are the practical benefits and challenges to using augmented and virtual reality as a tool? Just think if there are other people listening in who are also thinking about exploring using those technologies, would you have any uh, advice for them as well? Well, first of all, you need to think about what sort of device your students are going to, to use in order to create the material. I'm very lucky because every single student in my school has an iPad. Um, so that solves that problem. Obviously, you also need to think about the level of English that your students are going to have in order to be able to follow all of the instructions that are in the app. So if you're working in a school with high proportion of EAL learners, this could be an issue. So you need to think about that. However, there's plenty of um, um, tutorials on YouTube which are going to show you step by step how to use, um, in that case that I was using, Orasma app. So this could be tackled in that manner. I think it's a very good idea to, uh, to have one of the, at least one of those projects from time to time um, to do with your students because this really gives them a freedom to be creative um, and it's not going to take away learning because they are researching something that they feel good about, that they're passionate about, they want to find out more and you would be really surprised to see what things they can come up with when you give them a bit of freedom and take that step back from being the person that is controlling everything. 
And on the kind of practical side of it as well, so on the virtual reality front more so, um, have you used any headsets or are you mostly using, like you said, iPads and apps and sort of mobile versions of mixed reality? That's what we that's what we will be using uh, in the first stage uh, in my school um, because we already have this. Uh, obviously, if it's going to be uh, successful, if I am, we are going to see that it's working extremely well with our student and assisting them in reaching their full potential. Um, obviously, I will be looking for some funding and trying to take this even further. And how about the measurement of success? Is it a case of just sort of seeing how engaged the students are or there are other metrics that you're using to, to sort of track the impact of using this technology? Well, at the moment, as I said to you, I'm at the very early stages of using both augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, but obviously, I will be thinking on how I could be using it. I'm thinking about using my um, NanoSimbox license that we've, we have purchased in order to use it with my year sevens initially. Um, the idea at the moment is to use it as starters and as plenaries. Uh, in order to enhance learning and obviously the test results and the student engagement and um, the survey that I'm planning on having is going to give me an indication whether it is good to continue or whether I should try and look for something else. And then just finally, so last question, are there any other resources or tools or shout outs that you'd like to share with our listeners on this subject? First of all, um, I think it's a good idea to familiarize yourself with how to use those apps um, before you start using them with the, with, the, with your students. Uh, as I said to you before, um, there are online tutorials uh, that are available to, and some people are absolutely brilliant with explaining on how to use it and what, what to do in order to get the most out of each and every single one of them. So Carolina, have a lovely evening in Shanghai and thank you very much again. Thank you very much. That brings us nearly to the end of this week's episode, but before we go, here's Dennis with a few final tips for you on managing all the future tech for education we've discussed in the past few weeks. Try not to be afraid. Try to um, learn about technology because we fear what we don't understand. And uh, what we can do is use these things to our, our advantage for those we are teaching and for ourselves as we learn. Just to round off, I suppose what we wanted to do is really take all the ideas that we've explored and you know go back to a sort of practical level for people listening in just to start are there any other educator led blogs or resources on tech that you recommend for for people who are sort of starting that journey and exploring how they might use technology there are a number of good newsletters uh, mit media lab is a wonderful one uh, I have one as well, uh, which is bit.ly slash F-T-R-E-V-U-E. Um, again, podcasts like this one, Innovation Hub. Uh, the Bits blog on New York Times is wonderful. But generally, what I try to do is, is scour the web, search for keywords from time to time, uh, do a deep dive into a particular suite of technologies. Um, and then as you become more familiar with it, you know what to look for in, in keywords and uh, also what to be wary of in these headlines. Yeah, I mean, that's something we spoke about previously as well. On the, on the flip side of that is, you know, sometimes you have a very clickbaity title because that's the nature of, of news outlets out there. However, the information, the body of the text can actually be quite quite useful and insightful. So I guess it's like perhaps giving uh, articles a chance as well. 
Oh yeah, some of some of the best ones I've read have uh, have had a, a terrible headline. Um, and and again, as you say, there's this clickbait and and fear inducing. You know, the robots are going to take over. You're going to lose your jobs. It's happening soon. Uh, but then within it, you may find some some wonderful information. So when we were putting this episode together as well, the description, uh, one of the lines I've got here, so many new technologies wow us, but do not have useful application to education. So are there any telltale signs for gimmicky technology which can help our listeners steer clear of certain things? I don't know if you had any thoughts on that one. This is why it's important to immerse yourself in these technologies and uh, look around as much as you can before experiencing something firsthand. because. Uh, Again, the, the, the AR heart syndrome, if, uh, you see, if you notice every augmented reality company has a model of, uh, of a heart, um, which is wonderful, but it, it doesn't show that they've done much research or work beyond that. Um, and then next is the dinosaur. <laughs> so th- that is a bit of the wow factor. And once you can overcome that quickly, then you can look in to see if they're actually solving a problem or, or adding some sort of value that you didn't expect. Yeah, this this week's episode, we've looked at, you know, how to make technologies practical within the education space through the lens of mixed reality. And the teacher who spoke previously was talking about how outside of headsets, they're actually more focusing on the mobile version of mixed reality in the first instance. I think you had some thoughts on some of the more accessible in terms of cost headsets out there so could you share some of those ideas with us as well around the lower end side of headsets when it comes to virtual reality you have a very low cost option in google cardboard and if you work in a school or attend a school that has a bring your own device policy you can put your own samsung or iphone into the google cardboard and experience a moment of vr before sharing that experience with the rest of the classroom so again that's a very low cost option as you move up the spectrum the cost goes up but then the immersive experience also improves uh, with google daydream but then obviously on the much higher end i think it's going to be a little cost prohibitive for most classrooms unless you're talking about professional development or um, college uh, college level courses and and how about the byod aspect i mean for schools that don't have policy around bringing devices into the classroom or into schools will they be able to still access mixed reality or would that be a kind of barrier for them well i guess it is if you don't have the technology in the classroom then there is that that barrier um you can experience many of these technologies through a laptop as well so 360 interactive virtual reality as opposed to um having it on a headset itself which is a, a different experience and obviously not as immersive but you can you can do that with most products that are meant for virtual reality. So that makes it a little more accessible. Well, Dennis, again, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll stay in contact. Yes, thank you again so much for having me. And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you, Dennis, and to all the guests on this week's podcast. That brings us to the end of the first run of podcasts in the Pearson Future Tech for Education series. I do hope you've enjoyed and found inspiration and practical can-do moments with each listen. Over three and a half thousand of you have listened in so far, and that will be even more by the time this goes out. So we'd love to hear from you and do let us know if these tips resonate with your current work. Tweet at Podcast EdTech 
and at Dennis Hurley, that's D-E-N-I-S-H-U-R-L-E-Y, or check out the Pearson podcast page at tinyurl.com forward slash Pearson Future Tech, where you can also find more content reports and insights on everything from parental engagement, open APIs for edtech developers, or what skills you might need for the most prevalent jobs in 2030. I'll drop that link, show notes and more at www.theedtechpodcast.com. Next week, we're back with Christine DeSherbo and guests to imagine a world without tests. Come back to explore questions such as how do we test collaboration and should assessment be invisible? This is Sophie Bailey at the EdTech Podcast. Bye bye.